Welcome to episode three of the Architecture Podcast. Uh, we're going over the latest news of the week, the trends, and bringing interesting people to talk about ad tech and martech. As a reminder, this is in addition to the Gorm Architecture TV service, where we do in-depth interviews with CEOs of ad tech companies. For Architecture this week, we had a big week. I just want to mention that we added coverage of a new area, podcast advertising. So it is a bit meta to talk about podcast advertising on our podcast and to promote other podcasts, but that's the way we roll. So through a partnership with a company called Sounds Profitable, we added quite a bit of content right off the bat discussing the ins and outs of podcast advertising. And there's a full-length episode in which I learn about podcast advertising because I know a lot about ad tech, but not very much about podcasting. And I'd recommend everyone listen to it or watch it. It's free with registration, no subscription necessary. On to this episode. Uh, so today, my guests are Eric Franchi, our, our regular sort of co-host guest from Aperium Partners. And we have Connor McKenna, director of Luma Partners. Brought on Connor who, because he's been you know, tweeting out a storm, getting some really interesting insights into the uh, ecosystem. And also because if we had his boss, Terry, on, I would not be able to get a word in edgewise. So thanks for being here, Connor. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me. All right, Eric, great to join you here. And congrats on the the partnership with Brian and team over at Sounds Profitable. Been I've been following their stuff and and sort of covering some of the audio stuff for a while. Um, they put out great content, so excited to see you guys working together. Yeah, the one headline number is that podcast advertising is estimated by the IAB to be a two billion dollar market in the U.S., which is still on the small side. It's smaller than say out of home and some other areas, but it's growing and it's pretty exciting. Just what one thing on on the podcast ads front. I think the um the one of the potential growth vectors for podcast ads is going to be video because a disproportionate amount of the top podcasters, you know, they are increasingly putting out like really high quality video. Chris Williamson, um, I think it's modern wisdom. I mean, he's shooting, I think in 6k has like incredible, like uh, theatrical style video. It's really interesting. So I think, I think the market grows because it gets connected to video and CTV. And the other thing, I mentioned this to you, Ari, um, earlier this week. This is a big episode for the pod. 90% of podcasts do not make it past the third episode. This is episode three. Now so, I feel like I'm going to get hit by lightning after that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then wait, 90% of podcasts that make it past episode three don't make it past episode 20. So if you make it to episode 21, you've made it. You're in like the top 1%. All right, you just have to hope your third goals. podcast guest is not such a dud that everyone stops listening and you just decide to shut it down, right? Right, right. No, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think we'll be filming my face in 6,000 uh, <laughs> DBI anytime soon. Uh, this audio-only podcast for now. Although we did get some requests to put it on YouTube. So we're going to go into retail media, but I don't know. Was there any news in the ad tech world this week? <laughs> no, slow news week, wasn't it? Um, just kidding. Uh, so there was a bomb drop with the Department of Justice filing suit against Google. And um, we happen to be incredibly lucky because um, you are, have been talking about this stuff for years as you know, the, these sort of suits have, have happened and, and have, you know, you know, the number one, I think, knowledge set on, you know, just ad tech in general and how... Google has permeated through all of it. So um thought if we'd flip the tables and get you to talk about this stuff a little bit to start. Yeah, there's a Venn diagram you can picture. One circle is everyone who understands the mechanics of programmatic advertising and how Google works. And the other circle is people who are willing to talk about it publicly. And I'm the only one in the intersection. 
<laughs> yeah, it's interesting news. I, I have a little bit of a tweet storm, so I'd recommend looking at that where I just sort of pulled out the interesting bits of this 150 or 200 page document. It is dense uh, and probably no one besides lawyers are gonna read every word of it. But I, I thought there were some interesting takeaways. I kind of separated into the first, the what did the document actually say? And then secondly, what the implications are. The document itself is very well written. Like it, it gives a very compelling case of abuse after abuse, or excuse me, alleged abuse after alleged abuse that Google has undertaken on their sell side ad stack to either advantage themselves or take away flexibility from their customers, the publishers. I think in contrast to the Texas suit that a lot of people paid attention to, this is sharper, a lot sharper. It has less digressions into things like Jedi Blue, which was the deal with Facebook and was more um, sort of tangential to the overall business. It also has a lot less on the buy side. Uh, the Texas suit, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, my understanding is that a lot of the buy side allegations were thrown out of the Texas suit and it's mostly sell side. This uh, document doesn't even try on the buy side. Um, it talks about DV360 and how they used it to manipulate the sell side. But the allegations of, for example, benefiting DV360 by giving an exclusive access to YouTube inventory, it's glanced over. It's not a big deal. And they don't ask for any remedy about it. They only ask for remedies on the sell side. So that's my kind of meta thought about the filing. Um, very well done, sharp. Not everything holds water. You can poke holes in some of these allegations, but it seems like a pretty a real fire uh, shot across the bow is the metaphor I was looking for. And it looks like the DOJ is pretty serious about this. What yeah, do you think I, happens from here, Connor? Well, look, first I want to say thanks to Ari for putting out the, the tweet storm because I was about 120 pages in and I'm like, all right, I get a lot of this, but once it gets to the, the mechanics of the ad exchange, I needed someone smarter than me and more technical to, to tell me, you know, how legitimate was this? How much did people know? Because a lot of things people already knew were, you know, were some challenges. That was very interesting here. And I think you know, Ari, to your point on the buy side or, you know, sell side remediation versus buy side, you know, it seems like one, that's where the the crux of the problems were, right? Is is having the middle and this and the the sell side touch points is where they really had the opportunity to to do some of these uh, nefarious or alleged nefarious acts and be anti-competitive. Also, I think if you start to remedy the buy side, you open this massive can of worms into just the broader media ecosystem, which is Everyone leverages their relationships with advertisers to fulfill campaigns, sometimes in other people's media. It happens in traditional media, uh, you know, with the um, you know, large publishing groups and large broadcast agencies. They take their relationships and they somewhat act like agencies at times and go and buy another platform. So if you start to open up the, the demand side, I think it creates a, a massive can of worms. Um, also, it would be challenging for many other things like retail media and, and commerce media as they move off site. As far as you know, what happens here, hard to say, but I think the smartest thing would be to, is to spin ADEX proactively. So says um, the banker. You know, shocking, exactly, for the banker to say, uh, you know, it's hard when, when you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when you sit next to Terry Kawaja every single day, you know, you come up with the, the big ideas. But it, um, you know, ultimately, if you, if you get rid of that middle spot, it takes away a lot of the power that they leveraged throughout this. It creates more competition in the market. So it's better for the buyers. It's better for the publishers. And ultimately, actually, it's probably better for stockholders, right? In most cases where you've seen spins uh, and breakups, it's actually benefited the underlying shareholder. So I think that's the smartest thing to do. And I think if they did it sooner, the better, because 
right now, you know, every single ad tech sales executive is taking this piece of paper and going to every customer they can and talking about why they should lessen their emphasis on Google tools and, and focus more on their own. I have to agree with you. I think a spin out would be the best thing for Google. I think that the network business, which is this is the big part of, is the slowest growing and lowest margin port of Google. And it's a big distraction. It's the crux of most of their privacy problems. Not owning this would make the deprecation of cookies much simpler, or at least less fraught with um, conflicts. And it's a distraction when the core Google business around Android search and to some sense cloud are all highly competitive and need focus. Yeah. The cookies part I thought was very interesting in this. You mentioned, you know, they don't talk about YouTube. The word cookies is mentioned two times in the entire document, which I think, again, was very smart by the, the DOJ. And this is of trying to be very narrow and focused on where they were going, right? The cookies argument gets very, you know, messy with privacy and everything else. It's not, you know, as clear today how it's being used. But, you know, in general, when you start looking at Google, you can go into many different threads and then they kept it pretty focused throughout. Let's talk valuation since you're a banker. So, well, first of all, what would be spun? I, I'm, I'm of the opinion they wouldn't spin addicts without also GAM. Uh, the two go together, and there's no point to owning GAM if they don't have the ability to monetize. So let's just assume they, they would spin those two things and not spin DB360 or anything else. So GAM is a, is a SaaS business. I would guess five, six hundred million in SaaS revenue, but that's a pretty wild-ass guess. They've never disclosed it. So what valuation on that would be in the many billions of dollars for just GAM. And then the AdX as sort of a network business or exchange business, you know, how much media flows through it a year? I don't know, $10 billion? Is that a good estimate? Half, which is roughly like a third of the global programmatic business. Maybe it's more. So that would be, I don't know what multiple to value that on, but the whole combined thing would be, you know, among the largest tech stocks on the public markets. Am I, poke holes in that, do you not agree or you think those numbers make sense? I think it's hard to get the accurate on the, the you know, specifics of the revenue, right? Um, I think we kind of know it would be the largest independent ad tech platform, you know, right away. Scale in ad tech is, is a differentiator and has its own benefits to it. So I think that plays an important role in the valuation because, Right now, valuations have come down, right? The across the broader tech and SaaS market, I, I saw a report by Meritech today that there's only 17 public SaaS companies trading over 10 times ARR. Uh, and that's less than 20% of all public SaaS companies. So, you know, it's not going to go and automatically be valued at, you know, 30, 40 times ARR, like we saw a year or so ago, but it's still a dominant force. It still has opportunities to grow. So it's probably in the high single digits, double digits of, of net revenue. Um, again, we also don't know the margins. And I think in ad tech, that side of the house has become increasingly more important, right? Showing true operating leverage um, and, and operating margins on these businesses. So, but yeah, it, it has to be, you know, probably the most valuable independent ad tech company out of the gates, uh, you know, trade desk being the one challenger there, uh, whose valuation has certainly come down. So just in size of, of valuation. But. Right. For uh, just for reference, trade desk's current uh, market cap is in the low twenties, like what, 22, yeah. $23 billion. Um, yeah. so, so I would say certainly larger than that so, would be the valuation. larger than that. Yeah, definitely. The revenue on the network business would, um, you know, with a, with a reasonable multiple, just creates a probably a bigger business right there. And then you've got billion. the SaaS business, right? You've got the SaaS business on top of it. So, um, 
like mechanically, Connor. So let's say the spin out scenario happens. Um, you know, Google remains presumably a, a shareholder. Do um, do they just like spin out the, the team? Do they spin out everything? Does this you know become like a going back to the um, original double click transaction? Does a PE firm come in and, and do this? Like you know, again, we're, we're just like totally you know throwing things against the wall and, and imagining um, what what might this look like. Yeah, I mean, I think hard for any one PE to come in and do the whole thing, right? So to go take it private, I think that's a it's it's almost too big of a ticket. Um, the like you said initially, right? You spin out the whole team. The Google shareholders would become shareholders of it. So it's not as if Google and Alphabet control it. It's the shareholders of of that entity who would have the ownership stake. You may do something with a large pipe with a private equity company. So come in, bring in some other, you know, institutional capital. It might need some cash, right? Some operating cash into the new entity that could come from that avenue and, and bring some different investors to bear. But at that point, right, it, as the spin is effective, it would be completely separate entity. You know, there may be some, uh, oftentimes people like to try to make uh, agreements around data or, or, you know, certain licensing deals, but they're much more arm's length than they would be today. And and then they start competing because there there is aspects that they compete uh, still. So, yeah, a couple of years ago, I wrote a different tweet thread about what it would look like to separate out the double products. And the, a couple of points I made in that, first of all, all of the double-click products buy and sell side use the same cookie. And so transitioning to a different cookie would be incredibly painful and could involve asking every publisher on GAM to retag. That would be brutal. And secondly, uh, the double-click stack has been rewritten on Google technology. And uh, I think most people know this, but it's worth pointing out that Google doesn't internally dog food the Google Cloud internally. So the internal tools are different from the Google Cloud tools. This is different from Amazon. So Amazon has a has a strict dog fooding requirement where they use S3. They use all of AWS to run Amazon or they've transitioned over the years away from other tech. Google's not like that. So there would have to be some pretty massive rewrites away from Google's proprietary tools, which can take years. So this would be a very hairy operational spin out. And Google, to my knowledge, the only thing Google I think has ever spun out is Niantic, uh, the creators of um, Pokemon Go that had an integration into Google Maps. So there's not a real track record here of how to do this. So Eric, let me ask you, as the investor in newer companies, does this open up innovation and, and where exactly does it open up innovation? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, on the on the near term, you know, just competing in the core display market, uh, it, the, the more that, you know, sell side starts to question whether or not they should, you know, sort of like remain on the on the Google stack. There's companies that can uh, swoop in and provide more more modern solutions in, in many cases. So I think that's number one. Number two, and this probably you know transitions nicely into into the conversation we want to have with, with Connor. You know, the two highest areas of growth in the market, retail, commerce, media, and CTV, aren't necessarily like the domain of Google at all, right? So I think you know if we're in this state of uh, you know examining infrastructure and modernizing, and everybody's thinking about um, how do I you know, create my stack for, for the future that's going to be different. I think it creates a window of opportunity for innovation, window of opportunity for, for startups. And, um, you know, you can envision a future where, um, you know, again, back in the day, the big three we were joking about, I think, on a, on a previous 
pod with uh, AOL, MSN, and Yahoo, something <laughs> like that. Uh, you could envision a scenario where the big three of the of the future look much different than it does today. And you know, if you think about it, you start looking at some of the pie charts that are going around. Google, Facebook, they're losing share. Amazon, TikTok, gaining share. DTV, commerce media, high growth markets that they're not necessarily in the in the lead for. So. Obviously, I'm viewing this as a potential, like, incredible tailwind. Interesting point. One reporter was asking me about how spinning out their work and who, whether there's someone who could buy it. And the obvious answer would be Microsoft, but that would just be out of the frying pan into the fire, right? Yeah. It's not as though Microsoft would be a <laughs> would not have the same competitive issues that Google does between Bing and Xander and LinkedIn, et cetera. So just to close this out, because we could probably talk about this all episode, um, what are the odds that... TFP GAM is a separate company like two years from now. Eric, give us your take on it. A percentage. What percentage chance? 40%. Connor? You, you've got you've got 15 years of inertia. You've got 15 years of you know government trying to pursue something and nothing happening. I don't know if the odds favor it yet. This is a very substantial shot across the bow, but we've seen them before. Connor? Yeah, I'm I'm in the same. I, I was you know sort of flirting towards fifty, but hard to put it over fifty right now. I think the technical point that you made too around how hard it is to pull it out is is a nuance that is is very important in this. And part of their defense, what Facebook has defended around some of these things in the past, you, does that mean it can't be done? No, but it makes it harder. Yeah, right around that, you know, 40-50% right now. I, I think it's the I mean, best. I think it's the 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 most specific and and actually clearest um, you know, sort of case against it uh thus far. I'm going to go at 50 with the added wrinkle that Larry comes back as CEO and they do it voluntarily. So uh, we'll see if that comes true. If it does, I'll be uh, crowning myself on Twitter. So, all right, let's move on from Google and let's talk about some other topics. So, Connor, uh, we want to bring you on. One of the reasons that I thought, hey, let's bring Connor on was you had this really great thread on Twitter about retail media. Obviously, retail media is the new hotness. Everyone's so excited about it. But take us through uh, what you're seeing um, and what you think of the uh, developments here. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a space I've been uh, sort of tracking at Luma for a while. I mean, we actually did the Hook Logic deal to Critio six years ago, so somewhat early on. I wouldn't say we were we've been focused on it the entire time as much as you know as it's come back into fruition. But it's a space that's getting a lot of attention. I think rightly so. Um, there's obviously a lot of growth there. There's the Amazon, you know, is showing everyone the way. There's a lot of you know media margin to, to get. And so I think there's a big, you know, benefit there. It's driven a ton of people into this space, right? Everyone's now an ad network. But if you come down to like, why is it so powerful? I think the one of the reasons I think it's so unique is is what it does, how much it echoes why search and social were so strong, which was that it's got, you know, massive amount of scaled users. They've got a ton of first party data. And what those platforms did that was very efficient was they made um, sort of the automation and onboarding process very easy. So it became very easy to buy to the efficient frontier on those platforms to find new users and do so with you know fairly deterministic data. Commerce media at scale, right? So the big scale players have that, right? Though they have scaled users, they have a ton of first party data, and and they they're starting to build some of that automation. They add this other element, which is the closed loop attribution. So while Facebook is helping, you know, tie to outcomes, well, when ATT comes along and they all of a sudden can't get that signal anymore, 
their attribution really gets hurt. Well, the the commerce platforms have that already. And so that creates a massive opportunity here. Obviously, Amazon has started to take advantage of this, right? If you talk about retail media, you know, 70, 80% of it is Amazon today. But I think one, just in in that own in its own world of of like on-site retail media, I still think there's a big an opportunity for many others to play because unlike search and social, commerce is just sort of more disparate in general, right? People buy in different places. There it's not the same, you know, aggregation theory that Stratechery talks about is, you know, that every individual next consumer is completely free, right? Because you're just delivering a, a product that's a digital good. Well, that's not the case in e-commerce, right? You actually have to do shipping, get them a product and, and all these things. And in-store is still a massive part of that ecosystem. 85% of, of shopping is done uh, offline, right? It's done in-store. So that already means that there's a, a bigger opportunity for other people to play, and then I think that's the onsite stuff. The next big area is offsite. And that's really what my tweet thread was about. And that is, I think, coming together with a, a couple of things. This realization that there's a big media opportunity and what's happening with cookies and data deprecation, we're seeing power shift from a data perspective from some of the demand side where you could use third-party data, you could create your own audiences to the supply side where you have robust, scaled first-party uh, data platforms. So I almost like... You know, people talk about retail media and they bucket, you know, Marriott and Klarna and all these other companies into that. It's like that's not retail, right? So it's really first-party data networks is is probably the broader scope or, or commerce media, whichever you want to call it. But that opportunity uh, I see as a massive growth channel as these platforms start to you know leverage their data and, and make it usable to find people off-platform. Again, it will accrue to the larger players that are going to have more benefit. But oddly, it it doesn't only accrue to those with a large digital presence, right? The right. on-site stuff, you have to have people buying on-site and really shopping on-site. But for the off-site, it's really about more your data integrity, how good you are able to use your data, and then you know tie it to online activities for sure. But there's companies like platforms where you might be have a loyalty program. You don't actually buy online, but you often go to that store. It's you know your drugstore or something along those lines can still play a big role in this space as, as they grow. So- yeah, so those are things I'm very excited about and why I think we see legs in this area. It is early. Like it is, you know, it's like CTV three or four years ago, but it's growing fast. And I think eMarketer just put out uh, some numbers on the offsite digital ad revenues. And it's already, you know, expected to have been four and a half or over four and a half billion last year in 22. So, you know, already like double the podcast ecosystem and from an ad tech perspective. So there's a lot of dollars, you know, being put at work there. Yeah, it's it's challenging though because the on-site business, which is you can think of it as like product listing ads, has Search. different tech, different everything from the off-site business, which is kind of like a DSP ad network business. And then, like you said, um, the data challenge is also real because you you may want to bring in data from card swipes, loyalty cards in in uh, store purchases, um, other things like that. So there's no, it seems to me that there's no one vendor that does it all and that retailers are having to sort of build their own stacks here. Is that is that your perception as well? Yes, I would say so. I mean, that's why I'm excited about it, right? If, if there was one platform who could who could do this all, right? Or if it was all going to accrue to, to a, you know, single platforms who are going to build it in-house, it wouldn't be that interesting to me as an yeah. M&A banker. It wouldn't be as interesting to Eric as an investor, right? I think it is a hard, hard problem to to go after. It is one that is not in the 
strengths of these retailers, right? They're very good right. retailers. They're not good ad tech. And as we know, ad tech is far <laughs> more complicated than people give it credit for. And so it sort of requires a, a robust independent tech ecosystem around it to make this work and building tech stacks for it. So yeah. that means more innovation, more opportunities for consolidation, more opportunities for M&A. Yeah, it always comes back to M&A. Eric, I'll exactly. give you a chance one second. But let, let me just, so this, if you're not that familiar, if you were a large retailer and wanted to really go for it in commerce media, you might have a stack that looks like this. Um, you might use GAM or another ad server for display ads on your category pages. Then you need product listing ads where you might use Critio, who, who acquired HookLogic. That'd be a pretty common combination. Then you want to um, go offsite. So you might have a partnership with, let's say, the Trade Desk or Beeswax or another DSP for using your data offsite. And then you want to do attribution and give attribution insights into your uh, for your merchants, the people who are buying the ads. But you don't want to give them too much data. So you probably need a clean room to enable them to get the data in a, in a privacy protected way. Uh, and that might be your starting point for major vendors that need to integrate. And we didn't talk about uh, the data side, the CMPs or the DMPs that you need to feed the data. So it's pretty complicated. Scale um, the data. Yeah, to scale the data. Um, so Eric, you invest in, in Kevl, which is one yeah. of my favorite companies. We interviewed them for Marketector. I'd recommend watching that video. Uh, they're kind of an alternative ad server doing a lot of business here. You could, you know, basically slot them into, uh, you know, the the first couple of tech stack alternatives um, in, uh, in in the thing you, you just laid out, which is, by the way, super helpful. I think, uh, you know, folks should be taking notes on that. This whole thing is, you know, super exciting. You know, companies that are in and around this are doing quite well. I think there's, you know, a couple of challenges that, you know, sort of like might might be challenges, uh, but also opportunities. In that, you need a sales team. At the retailer or at the at the yeah, at, at the company. Never forget so, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like um, you know, if if you're adopting more modern solutions like a like a Kevl, um, you can have a product manager, maybe a couple product managers, APIs. You, you can you can get up and running. But then the goal here is to drive revenue. The goal here is to you know uh, create more stickiness with with your customers, right? So you know, the question is, how does maybe a you know not the top. 10 retailers, which I think can invest in, you know, teams to, to go to market. And you see some of them like sponsoring, you know, it's in the ad tech conferences, like they're really going for it. Um, how do they compete? Because they've got great data. Oftentimes they've got great scale. If you start to build out, you know, the third party off, um, offsite opportunity, it starts to become pretty sizable. I think that, you know, speaks to the opportunity for another generation of ad tech companies, which I don't think is yet to be built to, you know, really start to help enable some of this stuff. Um, because I don't think, you know, the, the analogy is to, pub, you know, this is like the publishers back in the day, right? First, there was publishers selling IOs, then it was, you know, ad networks, programmatic, so on and so forth. These were media sales organizations, retailers, and, you know, sort of like first party data enabled ad sellers, they're not sales organizations. So I right. think this could end up being like a real interesting category to build great, like, ad network or, you know, programmatic sales operations. Um, I think it's going to be needed for this thing to, to really scale. Free business idea, um, selling the non-endemic ads on retail media. You know, the retail media companies have no business selling ads to progressive insurance or automotive companies. Start an ad network that just does that. My phone notes pad has like six of those ideas. Um, it's, it's really, <laughs> it's a, it's a really fun time to be, to be deep in, in, in this space. Question actually for, for Connor. 
So there's, you know, the retailers obviously have the head start. You know, it's a it's a no brainer. Do you think that the growth comes from more retailers because there's so many retailers? And then you start thinking about the offsite, the offline capabilities, or is it the Ubers, the Lyfts, the Klarna's, the, you know, the non-retailers that have incredible first party data, big audiences, ability to sort of like, you know, utilize some of this stuff. You think the growth comes from retailers or non-retailers? I think it's both of them. Uh, I think, but I think actually, I think probably the latter is it probably plays a bigger role in some of the off-platform stuff, really, you know, scaling into more the ad tech side of things. On the retailer side, I you know get this question a lot, and I'm sure you hear it like, how many more retail media networks can there be? And I often come back to the same thing as you said with publishers, like, well, how many publishers can there be, right? If you have a digital audience that's coming yeah. to your site, you should monetize it. But like many publishers, you shouldn't own the full stack and you shouldn't, you know, you actually can use a lot of technology or outsource a bunch of it to things like media networks. And I think that will come to bear. So I think there's going to be very many and very few, like there's very many that can play that role and be incremental and and get some, you know, extra media dollars, makes a little bit more margin, but it's not going to transform their business, right? People are making announcements as if they're, it's, they're going to do what Amazon did. And that's going to be very, very few platforms that can really come and completely transform their business. I think into major media businesses, that's where a big chunk of their revenue comes from, or at least their, their um, operating profits come from. But I agree, like the retailers, right? The longer tail retailers is going to be more on that, you know, let's outsource it. Let's let's make some incremental dollars, see if we can use our data. The bigger platforms have scaled first-party data, whether that you're a retailer or you're an Uber or you're someone else, that's where there's more opportunity to do something large, especially as you move it offsite. And that's a big part of like what's happening with the data ecosystem. So I don't think we're there yet, but that's the sort of evolving component of the ad tech world as I see it. It's interesting just as a lesson, career lesson, et cetera, which was I personally took a job at a company called Bizarre Voice uh, that had acquired retail media network back in 2012-ish. And it was one of the leading retail media networks, but it was small and it was too early and no one was doing it. And our competition was the company that WBP purchased, Trident? Triad. Uh, Triad, Triad, thank you. Uh, And they also were pretty but only with a limited number of customers and they ended up shutting that down. So there were previous wave of retail media that didn't really work. And now this new wave powered by DSPs like the trade desk and others and through uh, Critio and others is uh, a lot more exciting and it feels like it's here to stay. So let's move on to um, the general M&A market. So uh, entrepreneurs and ad tech expect M&A to be the ultimate way that they monetize their stock as opposed to an IPO. And that dream was dashed in 2022 uh, with you know very few transactions and much lower valuation expectations. Is that true, Connor, or am I uh, speaking it's out of It's true in, in comparison to one 12-month period in the ad tech uh, world, right? Uh, in 2021. But I look back at our market report numbers going back to 2016 and 22 was right about the normal is 56 total deals and actually higher than any year other than 21 was scaled transactions to deals over a hundred million. So there were 14 last year, you know, there were seven in 2019, which, you know, was a slow year until Q4 and then sort of led into the, the COVID side of things. I'd say the difference though, is, I mean, there's, there's far more mature businesses in the ad tech landscape now with higher revenue, more profitability, you know, both numbers and margins. So it's a different landscape. But what we've seen is over the last couple of years, obviously, you know, valuations 
got pretty crazy. I mean, there was a point where the ad tech public markets were trading over 20 times net revenue on average, right? Which is, I don't think we ever really saw a sustainable. And, and as I mentioned, even the SaaS market now is there's only 17 public SaaS companies trading over 10 times ARR. So I think, yeah, that the hope of trying to on average be over 10 times is, is gone. But what's interesting is as it's come down, ad tech and martech used to have this big gap, right? Where ad tech was traded like media and martech was traded or is SaaS, right? And those are actually come much more in line. So on average, ad tech is trading around, you know, four to five times net revenue right now, which is more traditional for SaaS, right? Four to six and high, really high growers and great margins get, get closer to 10 and, and above. That reality has test is, is coming back in and, and that's going to take some time to for people to settle into. So is there a lack of transactions because of a mismatch in expectations about price or the buyers just buying at any price? I mean, I think in 21, the goal, people were being valued both in the public markets and, and on the private markets for growth, right? And so they needed to focus on finding the next channel of growth, growing into their multiples in order to sustain that. And so there was a lot of active M&A to go and do that, right? Whether people were using their public currencies that were valued very high um, or others, they were able to do lots of transactions and they were rewarded for seeking new channels. I think right now we're in a moment where people are focused more on showing sustainability, showing protection in their company. They're not as rewarded for growth at all costs, um, which means you know there's that slowdown and that's a slowdown in valuation. So even if they wanted to move into CTV or commerce media, they're trading at you know three or four times. They can't, it's hard for them to pay 10x, especially for a scaled business. There still will be high valuation deals done as there always are for strategic assets, right? Where you really see a one plus one equals three opportunity. Those are easier to be done for businesses that aren't, you know, that are smaller scale, right? That are growing into a space and someone sees it as an opportunity to, you know, get in early and they're going to buy them as they sort of like pay the future forward. But for scaled transactions, you know, you, it's hard to get the, you know, 100 million, 200 million revenue companies trading at 10x revenue. I just, that, that's not. So that's never coming back and you should accept that. So if I was sitting here as a CEO of a $50 million break even ad tech company, what should I do? Just accept that the future is less bright and sell for three or four X revenue? Or or should I double down and try to get to a certain scale point? I think if you're, I mean, it's, it really depends on the category you're focused on, right? So I think the first thing is like sustainability of your of your business model and your cash, right? So I think the break-even is shifting towards thinking about how do we make sure that we don't need to be raising at another round, especially if you raised, you know, very, very high valuations that are tough today. Focusing on where can you find pockets of growth, growth is still going to be a very important part of this and, and setting yourself up for like, I, I think we, we're probably in a brand or advertising recession right now, rather the whether or not the economy is, but there's aspects of this in this channel that are poised for lots of growth, I, you know, in the middle of this and coming out of it. And so I think people want to be seeking those areas. And then, yeah, I mean, if you've got great operating margins in a sustainable business, I mean, you're going to get traded like great businesses with operating margins, sustainable business. It's going to be high teens of EBITDA, you know, low single, mid single digits of revenue. I mean, that's more typical unless you find a, you know, an offshoot where you are a 
are in a very high growth area. There's a lot of scarcity around your type of asset. I mean, those are things that trade for much higher valuations. So, and- so the answer is to pivot to retail media. Like no matter what you're doing, pivot to retail media, become like, you know, if you're a video company, be video for retail. If you're, you know, so if, Eric, you, what, uh, if you can find, <laughs> if you can find scarcity there, right. Just like when there were, you know, hundreds of ad networks coming in the digital space, if there's a hundred of you, the valuation is is impacted by that too, right? If you're not finding a, a scarcity play or a unique angle to it that is sustainably unique, you know, you're going to be valued more the sort of in the average. Another yeah. entrepreneurial tip is that like there is a lot of demand for relatively small DSPs. So if you want to create a DSP and get to just like five or 10 million in revenue, you'll have a 10 different companies want to buy you. No, no one wants a big DSP. It's too complicated. But small DSPs, people will buy them left and right. I was actually thinking, why don't I just start three of them at the same time and just give them <laughs> like red, blue, and green names and use the same tech? Anyway, Eric, what, if your portfolio is early, how are, how are your CEOs uh, seeing the world right now? Somewhat dependent on where you're situated, right? So if there's segments such as CTV or identity or, you know, the sort of some compliance side of data or commerce media, you're growing fast. You probably raised uh, a couple of years ago during a time where, you know, you could do a, a raise to, you know, have enough runway. So you're situated uh, well. It's just grow. It's as simple as that. I think the real question is for the companies that you were talking about, Ari, where it's the you know ad tech business that maybe you know long the two have been out there for some time, fifty million dollars, not necessarily growing as quickly. Like you know, the the real question is what 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 do you do there? I think um the interesting thing about twenty two is a couple of the transactions that you know I look back and 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 think about like MIQ and uh, seed tag. These were like scaled media businesses, scaled, you know, you know, sort of like ad network type of businesses. So I think that if you're in that camp that you talked about, Ari, it's like, you know, focus on growth, focus on getting to a point where the numbers are like large enough. And I think you're going to have options on an absolute return basis just because you've built a hundred or two hundred million dollar business. And I think, you know, if you're properly positioned, you can, you can execute and do that. I would note on those that scaled, scaled profitable businesses is crucial there, right? Like you need to be focused on on that aspect of it for for those types of ones. Sorry. So Eric, your advice to your portfolio CEOs is just get to a hundred million dollars to be profitable and everything will be fine. Basically. (laughs) It's also 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 worth noting, I did an interview with uh, the CEO of SeedTag. Check it out on Architecture TV. I I feel like that's just, I have to annotate every uh, CEO we've talked to. So we were also going to talk on uh, today about the layoffs, but I, th- I don't think we have time to cover that. So uh, we'll wait another week and maybe there'll be more layoffs, so more things to talk about, unfortunately. But let, let's wrap this up. Um, so in the show notes, we'll have links to the various uh, tweets and things we've talked about. Um, you can follow me on uh, Twitter. Eric, you're, are you still on Twitter? Are you uh, moving on to like Mastodon or something? I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Eric Franchi. It basically exists to like Ari's tweets. <laughs> and Connor as well. You're a multimedia uh, entrepreneur, it seems, right? Yeah, I'm at uh, at CJ McKenna 12 and yeah, mostly in Ari's comments. So CJ McKenna 12, that's easy to remember. Um, all right. And for those of you um, listening to this podcast, please sign up at Marketecture TV, free sign up. Um, and there's a lot of good stuff there, um, but you can also subscribe. It's definitely worth it. 
All right, Eric and Connor, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. This is great. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Thank you for subscribing to Architecture. New interviews are added every week at Markitecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.